Jesus, um, I, I just, I just, I just love reading the Gospels because I just love to see um, the Lord Jesus uh, overcome the resistance of evil people. Uh, these people were against him were wordsmiths. You know what I mean by that? A wordsmith, somebody who specializes in language. Uh, the Pharisees were scribes, especially were wordsmiths. They were highly trained in language, in the art of language, in the use of language. The scribes and the Pharisees, lawyers, trained in the use of the law. And as you know, sometimes they can use that ability in the wrong direction, and they were using it. They come up against Jesus, who was a uneducated, you know, as far as they're concerned, an uneducated hillbilly, from Galilee, they think they think he's from Nazareth. They never could figure out he was from Bethlehem, but he's from Nazareth. They thought he was from Nazareth. Any good thing come out of Nazareth, and so they think they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna pop him, you know. They're gonna pop this guy. They're gonna they're gonna trap him in his words, and 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 they they up to this point had been able probably to overcome anybody and everybody that came up against them because of their abilities of intellect and and their their. Uh, if I may say, the privilege of education that they had. And so many of these people were very smart, could remember what they had done, and could repeat it in, in a few languages. And, of course, we know from the Bible that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge, without God mixed with it, will just make you proud, arrogant. You'll feel superior, better than those who don't know what you know. That's human nature. That's a sad thing. And here they go to Jesus, and they try to they try to catch him in his words. The Bible said, and in doing that, they got surprised that they had come up against the one who invented language. They had come up against the one who confused the tongues at Babel, and they weren't going to catch him in his words. In fact, they were amazed and went away ashamed in many cases and stunned. And that's kind of what this passage is in verses twenty-two to twenty-six. The title of the sermon is, Whose Image and Superscription Are You? And so let me read that. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? But he perceived 
their craftiness, and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny. Whose image and superscription hath it? And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people, because this was public. And they marveled at his answer and held their peace. Father, we pray that you'd come as only you can. The older I get, the less adequate I feel, the less able to do this. And more I realize that it's really more you and less me. We pray that the Father, that you take the words of God spoken today and that you would move in power and help us understand. There are a lot of needs represented in this room. We pray that you'd meet those needs. Draw these folks to thyself. In Jesus' name, amen. Biblical salvation always threatens liberal theology. Before the reading of the, before the text, the context of this text we read, the chief priests and scribes sought to lay hands on him. They actually sought to lay hands on him. John 5, 18 says, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Those closest to the event thought what Jesus was saying was that he was equal with the Father. I know Jehovah's Witnesses and other, other cults out there say, well, he didn't really mean that. But those closest to the event said he did mean that. And we're some 2,000 years away from the event reading the, the uh, words of it. I would say those closest to it understood where Jesus was coming from a whole lot more than, than Russell or Rutherford up there in Brooklyn of the Jehovah's Witnesses. False religion hates the truth. Actually, if I may say it, just false hates truth. It is not just a toleration uh, that they have. It's not just a deep dislike they have. It's not just some differences that they have with us or with those who hold the truth. It is simple, and it's a pure hatred of the truth. Truth challenges hypocrisy. Truth reveals sin. Truth rebukes the lives of those it touches. Truth is and of itself painful and disturbing at the first time you hear it. Doctor, you appreciate this, Dr. Crap. Truth is a scalpel. It's the scalpel that cuts the skin, cuts the muscle, cuts the tendons, to get to the cancerous tumor that's going to take your life. Yes, truth is a sharp two-edged sword. That's what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says exactly, for the word of God is quick, that means alive, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner 
of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And the next verse I really appreciate. Neither is there any creature, that means anything, that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Truth, by its very nature, uncovers, reveals, manifests, whereas darkness, by its very nature, hides, covers, uh, tries to keep secret. If When you run into truth, God begins to work with those secret things of your life and make them manifest. One of the common symptoms of revival where the Holy Spirit and God come in in power. They just had one up in North Carolina, up in a big tent meeting. You may have heard about it, may have gotten on YouTube, may have watched some of it. Went on for many weeks, uh, 13, 14, 15 weeks. Hundreds and hundreds of people got saved. I talked to a preacher just at our football game. Uh, New Testament Baptist Church preacher, and he said he went to it. He'd never been to a service like that. And, and, and what he found was, was what I've read and anything I've ever read about when God really comes and convicts these people, when truth has become overall manifest. What happens is, number one, confession of sin. The secrecy of darkness is overcome by the brightness of the light. People don't care what their reputations are. People don't care what is known of them. They don't care if people talk about them. They just want to be open with God. Truth manifests and opens as light does. Confessions of sin, confession of sin, number one. Number two, brokenness of spirit. Tears. Now, not always do tears represent truth. But when God comes, it's hard to hold the tears back. It's hard to hold it back. You really don't, you know, when people cry, they don't look their best. You ever seen people cry? They make some of the funniest faces. And, and you know, the mascara runs, girls. And, and you know, it's just not, but, but when God comes, you can't, you don't care about the mascara. And if you're a boy, hopefully you don't have any on. John chapter 3, maybe some of the most profound understanding of the difference between light and darkness is found in John chapter 3, verse 19 and 21. Let me read it. And this is the, These are Jesus' words, by the way. This is the condemnation, that light is come into the world. Now, when you, when you see the word light, think about something that reveals, something that uncovers. That light is come into the world, and men loved Darkness. When you think of darkness, think of something that's wanting to be secret and kept, confined and contained. That's why they do it in darkness. Why is most of the sin done? Why are the nightclubs open to 2 a.m.? And they want to be open to 4 a.m. Who in his right mind would be up past 11 o'clock? Ain't nothing good happens after 11. My mother said that. Ain't in the Bible, but it ought to be. Nothing good happens after 11 o'clock unless you're working from 11 to 7, which I did for a year and a half, which was horrible. But what goes on at night? If you ask any law enforcement officer or anybody, they'll know that the crime by vast majority happens 
in, at night. Why? Because the very nature of darkness is they want to hide. Jesus said, the light has come into the world. That which reveals is coming into the world. But men love to hide. They love darkness. Rather than that which was revealed, light, because why? Their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light. Why don't they want to come to the light? Lest their deeds should be reproved, basically made manifest to other people, so that other people may know what went on. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that which reveals. Where God comes in revival, you can read anywhere you want to read about revival, and you're going to see that God, when he comes in power and God's people respond to that, they begin to confess their sins one to another. They don't care who knows. They open themselves up and say, I'm a sinner. I got a trouble. Please help me. And God have mercy on my soul. They weep with brokenness. They have contrite spirits. It's there every time. They don't care. It's I'm just broken and contrite. I want to get this out. By the way, that disarms the devil completely. Because he loves the old skeletons in the closet. But he that doeth truth coming to the light, his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. So like liberals so often do, they, they, they complimented Jesus first. Let's do a little exposition of the text here. Verses 21. They said, Master, in Luke, 20, Luke 20, 21, that's where we're at. We know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. Now, folks, if you know much about the Bible, you know these people hated him, wanted to kill him, and made plans to kill him. Yet they're complimenting him. Liberals always want you to consider them as friends and companions in the faith. They develop intricate ministerial fellowships and want fundamentalists to join it, people that believe the Bible and are born from heaven. I have been asked by many different liberal, I say liberal, I mean really non-believers that call themselves believers, non-believers that act like believers, non-believers that claim the faith, but they don't have the birth that goes with it. And so, by the way, they don't believe about half of the book. They don't believe Jonah was swallowed uh, by any kind of whale. They don't believe Noah had a worldwide flood. They don't believe in the, in the literal six days of creation. They don't, they don't believe almost any supernatural thing recorded in the Bible. That's how you identify a liberal. They just don't believe it. Yet they say they're Christian. It's amazing. They pick and choose of the book. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is their favorite chapters. There's almost nothing else there in the Bible but those, those three chapters. They develop these, these, these uh, ministerial associations and invite people that believe the Bible to them to give them credibility. They pretend they do not understand the difference between us. They compliment our strong stand for the word, our impartiality, while despising it in their hearts. They mask hate with lovely words, just like they did Jesus here in verse 21. Oh, good master. Now, we know that you don't have respect to persons, which is, by the way, God does not have respect to persons, so you're just like God. And, and we know that everything you speak is true. They didn't believe that at all. They were complimenting. They were setting him up. They were, they were um, um, trying to 
open him up so that they could come in on him. Beware, the Bible says, when all men speak well of you. I've never had this problem much, but Luke chapter 6, verse 20 says, i got all kinds of problems, but this problem is not one of my main ones. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers of the false prophets. Liberals love to be spoken well of in every direction. And I learned a long time ago, if you're going to be right with God, you're probably not going to be spoken well of because truth by its very nature reveals and revealing makes people uncomfortable and people uncomfortable get angry and will strike back. Just so as they tempted Jesus, so you will be tried as the Bible believer. You're not getting out of this life without being tested. You're going to have real, vital choices of right and wrong, whether you're real or not. God's going to let it happen. It's going to come by. So Jesus said in verse 24, getting back to the text, show me a penny. Show me a penny whose image and superscription hath it. Well, the penny was a denarius. It's a one day's pay for typical day's pay for a Roman soldier. It's a silver coin, not very big, about the size of our dime. Coinage, by the way, has to do with authority and government. So he asked them to see a coin. Strange. It was strange request. Give me a coin. And they, they could not see where he was coming from. But a coin represents authority. Coins are worthless and will not be used if the government in power does not recognize them. Makes make sense? How many of you would like to spend for lunch Confederate money? <clears throat> Won't do you much good, will it? But if the Confederacy had won the war, it would have bought your lunch today. Why? Because the authority and power would have recognized it as real and a viable exchange. But because they're not an authority and they lost authority, they don't, it has no, really has no value except the intrinsic historical value of the Confederate money. Our government, and any government, determines the value of all foreign currency, whether it be the yen or the peso, uh, uh, whatever it is, uh, to our money. So when Jesus asked them for a denarius or a penny, he was getting ready, really, to talk about authority, not money. Whose image and superscription? Half it. They probably were scratching their head by this time. Okay, you get, ask, for, ask for this denarius, this one day's pay, this like dime, silver dime. And it was a day's pay. And then they asked, well, who's on it? Whose image? Whose superscription? That's what that means. Whose image was stamped on it? Maybe the most obvious and almost insulting question to an intelligent group of folks, here they were questioning his authority to challenge their, who, who was challenging their false hypocritical belief system. Remember, this whole thing was public. It was very sensitive. The purpose of their purpose was to cause Jesus to publicly become disloyal to Rome so they could then deliver him over to the Rome, Romans and say that he was being an anarchist and have him arrested and disciplined, hopefully put to death. But he comes from left field. Show me a penny. Whose image and superscription is on it? I suppose they felt safe when they said, Caesar's. I mean, that was what it was, right? It was Caesar's image on it. 
what does this have to do with whether we should pay Rome our taxes or not? Would have been a question surely go through their mind. But Jesus says, render to Caesar his. In the case of this world, whatever is made in Caesar's image, give it to him. In the case of God's world, what is ever made in his image, render to him. You owe to this world the material things of this world. You do. But you're made, as a born-again believer especially, you're made in the image of God. And because you're made in the image of God, you are to give to God according to his image. Each one of us has a responsibility, saved or not, a responsibility to God whose image we're made in. Because every human being, whether they believe in God or don't believe in God, are made in the image and then in the likeness of Him. This is profundity in absolute simplicity. Show us whose superscription? It's Caesar's. Well, then they were asking about taxes. Well, then render to Caesar according to the image. But they had to add, render to God. And that's the part they weren't doing, according to the image. And whether you sit here as a believer or an unbliever, as a skeptic, or as, as, a, as an honest, obedient soul that wants to do the right thing, every one of us is someday going to stand in front of, of the one we are made in the image of. Jesus is saying, give to the world their due. But because you're made in the image of God, give to God him his due. Give to him his due. We owe this world material things. We owe God spiritual things. Oh, does the world want to crowd God out? Oh, when I laid floor covering for 17 years, the best, some of the best paying, some of the easiest jobs were offered to me on Saturday and Sunday. And I, I just made a, I made a covenant early on in my life that Saturday and Sunday I wasn't going to work unless it was God. Because Saturday is the day you do visitation. It's the day you have some family time. And Sunday was God's day, period, the whole day, front to back, side to side. And I figured if I couldn't make a living in five days, I would simply starve to death. And look at me, I'm good. I'm not starved to death. Not as big as some of you, but... You know what I learned by all that? There is a God in heaven. And if you honor him and render to his image, his due, he takes care of the material part. 2 Corinthians 5.10 We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he had done, whether it be good or bad. Every person is going to stand before he whose image he was made in and give account of how you spent what you were given. The world rewards and punishes those who mishandle its image and authority and value. Don't pay your taxes. See how it goes. Don't pay your sales tax. 
That's like the Gestapo will come at your place and arrest you, cuff you, stuff you, and put you in jail, and then they'll investigate where the money went. I, I witnessed it happening. Somebody I know didn't pay their sales tax when they should have. Two guys showed up at the business, went in there, arrested him, put him in the car, took him to the jail, pop him in. Buddy, you don't mess with government's money. You don't spend their money. You don't take their money. You don't misappropriate their money. And you don't give them excuses for doing it. Unless you're Hillary. But even she is not going to get by with that. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For other foundation hath no man lay, than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort or kind or quality it is. For every man's work, if any man's work abide that he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. In other words, if you will render to God the things that are God's, he is going to reward you for that. If you steal from him and do not render the responsibility you owe him, you will be punished for that. Even born-again believers, which is just that what that passage is. That passage there in Corinthians is not talking about the unsaved. The unsaved who do render not even the recognition of who he is, especially Jesus Christ, his son who came and died and shed his blood and was resurrected the third day so that you could have the gift of eternal life. They reject all of that as mythology. Someday they stand before Jesus Christ having to answer for the misuse of the image they're made in, and they'll eventually have to answer for every sin they ever did, be cast into a place called the lake of fire. That's his Bible, is John 3.16. What a horrible day that will be. When they miss that, you are made in God's image. All, made, all men are answerable to God in the end. The question this morning is, how will you stand before him? Condemned for your sins and abuses? Or trusting in Jesus Christ for the payment of your sins? Which will it be? You make the choice now but you'll live with the consequences forever. When you get born again from above, your marred image is healed and reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ. You begin the process of what the Bible calls sanctification or being made in His image. That's what's happening with every one of us Christians. People will say, man, since I got saved, I'm having trouble. That trouble is the refining fire of God in your life. I, don't ex I cannot explain why you're what, what kind of trouble you're having or why you're having it other than God himself is making you in his image if you will simply be broken and contrite in his hand. I don't think you can be too humble. What do you think? I think you can be too proud. I don't think we struggle with being too humble. I don't think that's what, out of this whole crowd here, I'm trying to think if I know anybody that's too humble. No. I had to think about that about a half a second. Now, let me see. Do I know anybody too, well, let 
Let me tell you, pride's your enemy. It's my enemy. It's your enemy. It's not humility. I don't think you're going to overhumble yourself. And if you did overhumble yourself, all you would get is empathy and sympathy and compassion. Because God would raise you up. The Bible says God resists the proud, but what does he do? He gives grace to the humble. And how much grace you want is the degree in which you're willing to humble yourself. The more you humble yourself, the more grace you get. I want grace, brother. I want it all. I want everything I can get by the, by the way of God's grace. But you'll not get it by holding back. You'll not get it by, hum, by not humbling. But if you'll humble yourself in the mighty hand of God, he will raise you up. And when God raises you up, brother, you're raised up. The mistake most make is serving the image of Caesar and forgetting they have a responsibility to God's image. That's what I see over and over again. I see guys working their fingers to the bone and neglecting God. I see people too busy to go door to door, too busy to do bus ministry. Too busy to do to help the folks at the nursing home. Too busy to pass out tracts. Too busy. Too busy with what? That's God's work. That's God's business. Too busy to come to church. Too busy to, to, to just, you, you name the list. You make it your own list. You make the list of things that would be, would be spiritual and God's work. And, and as, a, as, a, as a person made in the image of God, render to God the things that are God's. But don't let the things that are Caesar's crowd out the things that are God's. What do I see the most of? I see the things that are Caesar's crowding out God because the now and now is more important than the, the coming then and the future. But it's not so. It's not so. The things that are Caesar's eventually fade away and will be burned up and gone. Nothing you people own in this room can you keep. Some of you have some china that is so dear to you. I hope it's not. I hope I'm not talking to any men. But if you are and you like china, phrase or maybe you got some china that is, you know, the Ming Dynasty. Uh, I'm road showing you now a little bit. Uh, maybe you got some Tiffany lamps. Uh, maybe you got some stuff that's worth some big bucks. I mean. You know, only at the biggest, most important day of the whole year, you whip that stuff out, clean it a little bit, and put it out there. And, you know, God forbid anybody drop a plate and break it. I can guarantee you, your kids will inherit that and go, who wants this old china? Or if that girl doesn't, her girl will go, oh, my, this is great-grandma's china. What is this junk for? Let's take it to Goodwill. Somebody at Goodwill will go, some picker, picker, you know, at Goodwill will go, ooh, I'll take that. That's worth $25,000. But even they can't keep the twenty-five grand. Your most precious possessions, those things that you've cared about and you've hovered over and you've prepared, you must leave. The things that are Caesar's really have very little value. That beautiful house you live in, you're going to give it to somebody else. I like to read the Psalms where it says, 
you know, somebody else will have it and they may not even care about it. That's right. That's right. I plant trees. I like, I like trees. I bought five acres of land, planted a bunch of trees. I was sitting out there looking at them the other day thinking, you know, the next person that lives here probably will cut all them down. Get rid of all them trees. I'll be mad even in heaven. That's why God don't let you see that stuff. When my mom and dad died, it was a good object lesson of the things to Caesars. My mom and dad had certain things their whole life we didn't get to touch. We did not get to touch them. After they died, we didn't know what to do with them. Took five loads to goodwill. Called people to the church, and the young guys at the church said, come on over, take anything you want, anything in these. I mean, they had tools. He had stuff with their tags on it. He had just good stuff. I mean, I said, just take any of it. Why? I got a whole house full of junk already. My brothers had houses full of junk. We don't have any room for any more junk. But it wasn't junk, it was just stuff. What I realized is the things that are Caesar's, yeah, they're, for the moment, they're fine. You can use them for the, but really, really, they're only valuable in how much you can use them for the things of God. If you can take the things of Caesar and use them for the things of God, well, then you can translate this temporal uh, value to eternal value. Ooh, that's an idea, isn't it? I can take the things that are temporal and will eventually be given to somebody else, and I can, I can put them to the things of, the, of, the, of God, and they're going to last. He says, if you give a cup of cold water in my name, you'll not lose your reward. That encourages me to take the things of Caesar and put them with the things of God. But not just money. We're talking about my time. We're talking about what little talent I may have. We're talking about then, of course, the treasure I have. What a profound statement. Do you have a penny? Whose image is that? Whose superscription's on the penny? Uh, a Caesar. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Father, help us today to be able to apply this. We pray, Father, that there could be some here who have devoted their whole life to the things of Caesar, and they finally realized the things of God are what count in the, in the end of it all. We pray, Father, that they, they may align their actions with the truth that Jesus spoke. Father, we pray that there be some here without Christ. They may say, yes, I want to be saved today. I want to recognize I'm a sinner, unable to save myself by any amount of good works, and that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was the one, the one, the Messiah that came and paid for my sin on that old rugged cross. And indeed, literally, physically, visibly, was resurrected from the dead. I believe. Bible says, to as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, the children of God. Why don't you 
in just simple childlike faith this morning say, Lord Jesus, I want to be saved. I want to, I want to know you as my Savior. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around. I don't, do not do this regularly, and I do not do it often. But I feel that this morning. With nobody looking around, you say, Brother Bill, I'm the only one looking. I want to trust Jesus Christ today, right now, as my personal Savior. If you want to do that, you have a desire in your heart. You believe God indeed has come by. Would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Anybody here this morning? Anybody here this morning? Yes, God bless you, brother. Anybody else? I want to trust Christ as my Savior. Yes, praise you. Praise the Lord for that. Anyone else? Two adults. Anyone else? God's been working on you, speaking to you. Father, we pray those two that raise their hand, you'd anoint them and help them to know you, whom to know is life everlasting. We're here to help. We have a first steps class. We have, we have every kind of discipleship that you could want. We can't help you if you don't come and let us know about it. Maybe you're here as a Christian, but you've been rendering to Caesar way more than he ought to get. This, your life is completely out of balance. You're about, you're about 95% Caesar and about 5% God. May it not be so. It's your choice. You've got the power. God will make your money go farther. God will make your bills go down. God will save you where, you where you could not save it if you'll trust Him first. In Jesus' name, help us. Amen. You come. If you'd like to know more about Jesus and the subject preached on, please contact us at gospel at mygbcs.com or call us at 239-947-1285. God bless.